Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas talking. Hello, this is Lisa Falkenberg. I'm a columnist with the Houston Chronicle, and I think they asked me to do this because last week I won a Pulitzer for a series of uh, columns on a wrongful conviction and problems with the Texas grand jury system. It was a great honor and one that unfortunately took the Chronicle 114 years to achieve. I'm just hoping that the fine folks in Austin don't take that long to bring up grand jury reform on the House floor. Come on, y'all. Get her done. Or they might take that Pulitzer away. And now your host, who is a hell of a writer in her own right, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Lisa. This is Emily Ramshaw here with the TribCast for the final week of April. I'm joined by executive editor Ross Ramsey. I love the sound of final week of April. (laughs) You're making progress. Uh, Reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And reporter Aman Bathija. Hi there. Uh, happy to have you all. We are giving Evan a little break from it this week. We're giving us a little break. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, so Ross, let's start uh, with you. I want to talk a little bit about, about the state's voter ID law, which faced uh, a fresh round of scrutiny in New Orleans this week uh, in the Fifth Circuit. Basically, it issues whether Texas intentionally discriminated against voters of color when it passed what many believe to be the nation's strictest voter ID law. So, so what's the latest? Well, the lower court in this case said that Texas did intentionally discriminate and, you know, cited a bunch of things, you know, bypasses and workarounds that uh, lawmakers considered that they left out of the law. Um, And so they took this case to New Orleans, to the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative appellate courts in the country. And you might think would rule with the Republicans, all other things being equal. And and that may indeed be the case. Uh, Jim Malowitz went down there and covered it for us. And it sounded like the judges were concentrating on this question of whether Texas intentionally discriminated. There was an exchange that Jim reported on where the state apparently said, you know, there's no written evidence or anything that the state discriminated. And one of the judges said, well, do you think they would write it down? Uh, (laughs) So, you know, it's going to be kind of an interesting thing. I, I think, you know, the two things right in front of us on this are we've got an election year ahead of us. And so one question is whether we'll have the voter ID in place as it is now for the next set of elections. The other is if the state loses this case, whether it's the kind of thing Greg Abbott would call the legislature back for a special session for in order to get a law in place that's suitable to the courts in time for the election. Well, it seemed like one of the things discussed in court yesterday was like why the legislature hadn't taken this, it hadn't, you know, worked out some of the kinks in this in this issue. That was my favorite quote. They're working now. What are they doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's the last week of April. You could like actually hear like the tone of bafflement <laughs> in right, the judge's exactly. voice. <laughs> I mean, is there an expectation that lawmakers would be be working on this this session? Well, you know, the the first court that heard this said, you know, there are a bunch of things that Texas could have included in this law as, you know, heat sinks or, or, you know, things, you know, little remedies that might have made this less onerous that the legislature considered and didn't put in. And, you know, you could read that as saying, hint, hint, put these in. And, And it sounded like the fifth court was asking, why didn't you take the hint? And the state's taking the position of, you know, we don't think these things were illegal. We think this is a constitutional law and we're going to defend it as it is. I think if the court were to rule it unconstitutional or to say that the state discriminated, they might come back and put those things in. That that might be the remedy that 
a legislature would, you know, affect in a, in a special session if there is one. Well, so let's talk about special sessions, which is everyone's least favorite topic. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, what do you think the likelihood is that, A, we come back on anything, B, if we come back on something, that it's something like this versus, say, you know, tax cuts? I think it's more likely on something like this or redistricting, which are both pending in the federal courts in which the state doesn't control. You know, the things the legislature controls, it has plenty of time to take care of. Whether it will or not, you know, who knows. But uh, there's been some talk around the Capitol, mostly in the lobby and at the press tables about, you know, maybe they won't finish the budget and they'll come back. They almost always finish the budget. Um, you know, they've, they intentionally didn't finish the budget in 1991. There was a chunk of the budget that they had to come back and fiddle with in either, uh, I think, in 2011. But they always finish the budget, and, and I expect that they will. What do we know about the budget conferees that's different this time around than in than in previous sessions? I think we actually had a, a cool-looking interactive on that today, Alexa. <laughs> well, I think what surprised me most looking back at the makeup of this year versus the last 10 legislative sessions is that the two most experienced members of the conference committee are actually Democrats, even though there Sylvester are only Turner. two of them on there. And Chewy Nohosa. Okay, yep. And I, so for me, that was the most interesting part. And the fact that there are four women on there, which, you know, is, we're still sort of at this point where we look at how many women are on this leadership group mm -hmm. because they still are underrepresented in the Capitol. And as early as 2001, there were no women on the budget. Almost conference half the committee. women in the Senate are on the conference committee. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. There's seven women in the Senate. There's three on the conference committee. As recently as 2001, there were no women conferees. Correct. Wow. Well. That's pretty remarkable. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about uh, the tax cuts in particular that are on the table and are creating a, a pretty uh, big uh, fight these days. There is no love lost right now between uh, Dennis Bonin, who's the author of legislation in the House, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who is uh, presiding over a Senate where he desperately wants to see property taxes. Where is the rub here and, and where do we stand right now? I don't know if I can remember a more stark divide between the House and Senate on an issue in like recent years. The House passed their tax cut plan yesterday, and the sales tax cut, which is the big issue of divide with the Senate, passed unanimously. That showed just how much the House is behind Bonin's plan um, and how much he's done a good job of convincing them that property tax cut is not the way to go. So is it that they voted for this? I'm, just to be clear on the property mm -hmm. tax stuff. So is it that the House, even the sort of, you know, members who might have supported a property tax cut, are they voting for this just because it's a tax cut? Like, will they, are they hoping that it'll get, you know, either uh, amended or changed so that there's a, a property tax cut? Most of the Republicans signed a letter over the weekend that said they very clearly stated the House, they believe the House tax cut plan is superior to the Senate's. Uh, and if you talk, just about every Democrat would rather see a sales tax cut than a property tax cut because they feel it's uh, just better for you know poor people and uh, they like the fact that it, 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 it's a cut for all businesses as well as just all Texas residents. Mm -hmm. All right, so then take me over to the Senate side and do we have this sort of strong line in the sand? Both, uh, well, Dan Patrick has said multiple times in the past week, I will not support a budget without a property tax cut. He's stopped short of saying, I will go to a special session if I have to, but... Has somebody asked him that question directly? I'm not sure if they've asked him... No, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about Dan Patrick is that he talks in absolutes, and sometimes he comes off of them, and sometimes he doesn't. You know, there was mm -hmm. a time when... We, there was a moment when we all were absolutely positive that he had said, 
I will not have any Democrats on any committees if I'm elected lieutenant governor, you know, and there are a couple of Democrats in charge of committees. So <laughs> did he say that he wouldn't have any at all? Or did he say, you know, it was, I wouldn't be surprised if there were none. I wouldn't be surprised is, is if how that quote yeah. you know, came back. But but this is one of those things where, you know, if he's talking in absolutes, um, does he really mean to? Mm-hmm. Is there well, an asterisk right. here? Yeah, I mean, and he said that he made this one of his things, right? His, you know, Dan Patrick made this one of his priorities for the session, that th- there would absolutely be a property tax cut. So, you know, if there's not, then does it look like he has failed? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you promised. <laughs> yeah. yeah if you, you know. So, I mean, maybe he's going to have to force, you know, force the issue on this. He didn't seem to be backing away from this idea. You have to look at whether you could get this through the House. You know, the, the, the Senate put this together as a constitutional amendment, which requires two-thirds approval from both houses. And by the way, never goes to the governor. So, you know, Abbott's out of this. Um, So if you go to the House, I mean, just this is informal and, you know, nobody really knows and they haven't done any hard polling on it yet. But, that you know, a lot of the leaders over there don't think there are two thirds um, of the membership of the House willing to vote for the Senate's plan. So even if you liked it, you know, even if, you know, Joe Strauss liked it, the question is whether he could get 100 votes for it or not. Mm -hmm. How much of this is House members actually hating, prop- liking sales tax more than a property tax cut? And how much of this is them not liking the Senate right now? Well, and, you know, Dan Patrick and Jay Nelson, the, the line they keep pushing is they've heard from probably hundreds of different Texans saying they hate the property tax or they, their property taxes are too high. They say they've never heard that on the sales tax. Mm-hmm. And there are some House Republicans who feel that way, that, you know, their member, their constituents are much more concerned about the property tax cut. But Bonin and Strauss and people in the House have just keep reminding them, look what happened in 06. We cut the property tax much bigger than we're planning to. And it was hardly now. noticeable. Or, right. And that appraisals just keep, kept going through the roof. They promised everybody a $2,000 average tax cut mm-hmm. and you know just didn't materialize. Well, and I, I think a lot of people technically did get a tax cut that big, but it got swallowed up by other things. So right, by the rising property. If, right. And, <laughs> and even people who like saw their tax cut, their property tax bill stayed the mm-hmm. same, they felt like that's it but even though without the tax cut their bill would have gone up a lot so how personal has this fight become between Dennis Bonin and Dan Patrick and I mean can you know I think we we taped the the podcast last week after the sort of blow up uh, about the the breakfast meeting I don't think we had any details about this leadership breakfast meeting so someone can walk us through sort of the background there uh, you know I think I think there's some fake drama here um, you know this is this is the way the House and the Senate talk to each other. It's, you know, it, this is a sibling rivalry that's as old as the chambers, and and Bonin happens to be the person in the House who's the voice of it, and Patrick happens to be the person in the Senate. I don't think it's personal. Um, you know, I haven't seen him in the parking lot yet. I don't know. It seems pretty personal to me <laughs> by this point. I mean, I think Bonin kind of started it. He made the much stronger statements about kind of not just criticizing what the Senate was doing, but making it about Patrick. But I think it was also a way to signal to Patrick and to the House and the Senate that we're serious on this and we're not backing down on this. Has Dennis Bonin's role in the House changed in, in recent legislative sessions? You know, some. I mean, he's come into leadership and he's he's um, the voice sometimes for the leadership's frustrations. He's, you know, Strauss is always sort of like even keeled, <laughs> nothing to see here, folks move along and, you know, um, kind of um, – the, not not the face of passion over there, and and Bonin's kind of the um, designated hothead sometimes. Um, he's also you know chairing a committee that's really important this session. Ways and Means has got all the tax bills, has all of that kind of stuff, and you know he's moved from kind of a loud backbencher over the years into a loud frontbencher. Uh, but he's 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 the voice 
you know this you know the Pixar movie that's coming out with all the voices in the head he's the he's the loud angry voice I'm not sure I know what you're talking about right now but I'm gonna go with it go, go to movietrailers.com <laughs> that's what you do in your office oh, right exactly right. Yep. so I mean how do Abbott's desires play into any of this I and mean, what has he said formally that he wants and and will sign Abbott's official budget that he put out calls for a property tax cut and he's spoken favorably for a property tax cut but the only thing he said he will not ex- he will not accept a budget without business uh, tax, tax cut. okay he, oh, without a business tax yeah, cut yeah that's what he's been very specific on and after this kind of division became clear between the house and senate he had a press conference again on i think it was april 15th uh for right. to push again for business tax cuts and of course one of the first questions to him was, well, what do you think about property versus sales tax? And he he said he was basically agnostic. Yeah, he said, you know, I like I like tax cuts. I, I like, really tax, like cuts. tax cuts. <laughs> tax cuts are great. Right. I, you know, it, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility here that you can't get the Senate thing and you can't get the House thing. So you bag both of those. And instead of two or two and a half billion in business tax cuts, you use the whole four point. Is it four point nine now? That's four, that's what the House passed. Four point you know, nine. Four and a right. half to five billion dollars in business tax cuts, and you just bag the other two, and you go out and you say, "Look, this is the tax cut that the economists are telling us would do the most for the economy, would cut the, or would help build the largest number of jobs." And we've been hearing a lot in Republican and Democratic primaries, Republican primaries in particular, about cutting the business margins tax. So that's what we're going to do. So somebody's going to back down. Who's it going to be? Well, if that's the case, both of them back down, and you well, and you kill the you kill the house, you kill the Senate, and you go with business tax. Yeah, but Patrick's the only one that campaigned on a property tax cut unequivocally. Uh, I think I think Abbott talked about it on the campaign trail, but it wasn't as out there in front as Patrick was. It, it doesn't necessarily hurt senators to go out and say, you know, we tried to get you a property tax cut, and we right. didn't have the votes didn't in the work. House yet. Mm-hmm. Right. right. There's going to be you know those if you're, pesky. Yeah. If you're in one of the third of the party groups that's been railing at the House, this is. This is real fodder for you. If the mm-hmm. House is the place where it looked like property tax cuts went to die, you know we're going to see that in some mailers next next uh, spring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, speaking of drama on the House side, uh, Alexa, you got to cover this week. I say got to cover. You're so lucky. <laughs> uh, the latest fight over abortion in the legislature. I think some of us thought uh, too soon that we might actually slide through this session without having a big blow up on the House floor yeah. over abortion issues. What is the latest? Uh, remarkably, there are still further ways to restrict abortion in Texas. So what is the latest way that is on the table? So what Republicans are really focusing on this year are two things. One is judicial bypass, which is the legal process minors use to obtain an abortion without parental consent if obtaining consent might put them in any sort of danger. It's about a couple of hundred um, minors who use this on a yearly basis. And so they're really trying to reform that, really pulling back minors' ability to do that with several things, that, including what some people are calling an abortion ID, which would require wow. all women to present an ID to prove they're not a minor, even if you're, you know, 30 years old trying to get an abortion. And the other way is by Can trying to... use that to vote? Yeah, right. <laughs> the other way is the judge trying. wants you to work on that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the other method that they're trying to block is is by pulling abortion coverage from health insurance plans. Um, the Senate endorsed one version of this legislation, which would ban it from both private and those plans that are offered on the federal marketplace. Whereas the House seems to be moving forward on just banning them on the federal marketplace insurance plans. So already, insurance plans cover abortion in certain circumstances. 
clauses or? There are some plans that offer as part of their coverage. There's some sort of stipulation where they have to keep the funds separately, at least those on the ACA marketplace, to keep separate funds going toward abortion coverage and those through other care. Um, But the idea is that they don't want taxpayers to be subsidizing abortion care for others. And so that's the argument there. But, you know, these bills are actually moving forward. They're getting traction. It was a little slow at the beginning of the session, but it's really picked up in maybe the last week and a half. But, you know, there are still some restrictions that aren't really getting anywhere. And we saw that kind of blow up on the House floor last week. Uh, Representative Matt Schaefer has proposed removing the exemption from the state's 20-week ban on abortions for those abortions that are based on severe fetal abnormalities in which... So basically fe- saying in all cases there's no right. abortion. And so, you know, the the, exem- the language of the exemption was highly negotiated last time. It was, a, it was an agreement between Republicans and Democrats. Right. This and was this the deal they worked out in order to get this 20-week ban through? Or? Exactly. Yeah. And so this time around, you know, he proposed it as a bill. It got referred to committee. It's been left waiting there since it was filed back in, I think, February. And so he took to the floor and tried to attach it to a bill that would basically just streamline services at the public health department. This is like basically a routine sunset kind of bill for the state's health department. Right, exactly. And so he tried to tack it on as amendments. It kind of blew up in everyone's faces, but then it actually got attached. And so they had to end up pulling the bill off of the floor. The entire The entire bill. bill. Over there, so I mean, I, I remember you know watching this debate. It seemed like it just came out of nowhere, and then suddenly, you know, you had um, some Republican lawmakers in the back of the chamber who were you know praying for it. Uh, it appeared praying for this amendment's passage. You had uh, State Representative Trey Martinez Fisher, uh, who is basically like a, a, a Democrat who's the king of finding legal technicalities to derail measures. Uh, he was you know there with his rule book, basically you know trying to kill the the entire. Um, bill, you know, as a way to get this amendment knocked off. So, I mean, it it seemed to me like this was, it just reminded me of sessions past and I didn't know we were going to get there this year. Yeah, it really wasn't until that morning when they sort of started whispering about these amendments that were going to come up on the bill. Um, and they got to them pretty quickly. It, it really delayed consideration of the bill for a couple of hours. When, when the first amendment was proposed, they kind of took um, Schaefer and Four Price, who was the author of the bill, and Sarah Davis kind of, you know, went off the floor to discuss this for, I think, about 30 minutes, and they came back and they moved forward with it. You know, there was sort of a back and forth, but I think the most surprising thing is that Four Price had actually said, you know, I don't want any amendments on this bill. Despite my personal beliefs, we just got to keep it, we have to keep it as a clean bill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually when the author of the bill says they don't want amendments, you know, leadership kind of follows through, the members kind of follow through, but we didn't see that here. And I think it was indicative of, you know, people not trying to be on the record against an abortion measure. And so it kind of forced people's hands to to vote for this amendment, and they eventually got attached to the bill. Mm -hmm. The amendments get to the floor. This is, you know, this is the same way tax bills work. It's the same way ethics bills work. You can have a position on it, but once you have to take a vote on it, you know, everybody's watching. And if you're a Republican in Texas right now and you get a pro-life bill on the floor, you know, no matter what you think about the bill or a pro-life amendment on the floor, mm-hmm. no matter what you think about the bill or what you think about for price or whatever, 
you're gonna have to vote for it. And they were I mean, in the even 80s, for Price voted for all, it. You know, yeah. well, there were 80, <laughs> the votes, the 80 plus votes in the affirmative on right. all these, right? Yeah, yeah, even though he'd said no, it, let's keep it a clean bill, he yeah. voted for it himself. He asked, he asked for them to table it and then ended up voting for it. Wow. Right. Yep. There were members who thought that you know sales tax cuts might not be the way to go, but you put a bill like that on the floor and it's 141 to nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this a sort of later stage in the session for us to be to be hitting these kinds of issues, or is this just you know it, suddenly they're looking at the clock and they're saying, oh, it's, it's time. The last week of April. <laughs> yeah, right. I think a lot of things had been sort of stuck in committee and they weren't sure where it was going, but the fetal abnormality ban was one that hadn't even gotten a hearing. And so Schaefer said that, you know, this was his way to do it. And so, you know, are we just going to basically be watching for the rest of the session? I mean, is every potential, is every health care bill a potential vehicle for, you know, these types of amendments? I, you know, I talked to him yesterday and he, he wouldn't say flat out that he would continue doing this, but he did say that he was going to use every sort of rule in the book that he could to, to move this legislation forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if we'd see it again on another bill. Mm-hmm. You know, they filed more than 6,000 bills, and there are less than five weeks left. And what happens now is you're not going to get to 6,000 bills. So if you're one of those bills that looks like it's either stuck in committee or it didn't get a hearing or whatever, or it's not going to get to the floor in time, you start looking around for what they call vehicles, other bills that your stuff might be pertinent to, and you start trying to stick your stuff on it. You know, the the these kinds of amendments are going to find health bills. Um, you know, everybody with an ethics bill that didn't move is going to try to get on the ethics bill that is moving. We're going to see this over and over no matter what the subject okay, but, is. Okay, so, but talk to me about pertinence because so this amendment was, you know, was acceptable, was brought in, people were able to vote on it. But when we were doing the, the whole uh, open carry debate, you know, what was the whole fight over Jonathan Stickland couldn't get his basically his constitutional carry amendment, you know, Tacked on. Well, you know, they write a caption and there's a legal determination as to whether every amendment that's proposed is germane to the bill. Does it change the subject? Is it within the subject covered by the caption? And and the problem with the bill for Price was carrying was it's a sunset bill for the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, uh, Which Department regulate of, abortion yeah, facilities. Yeah. State health services, rather. And Basically, the caption was broad enough that you looked at these amendments and said, yeah, that goes with this bill. It's the same subject matter. Proceed. Mm -hmm. And what they decided on the handgun bill was that that caption was written narrowly enough that a constitutional carry amendment wouldn't fit. Stickland obviously disagreed, but the call from the chair is the call from the chair. Right. So basically, basically what these lawmakers carrying these bills are trying to squeeze through, you know, they're basically hoping for the narrowest caption they can get. And on a sunset bill, like all bets are off. It's just too broad. Right. There's some bills that just look like, you know, that looks like a Christmas tree with an opening. Right. Right (laughs) here in my hand. A perfect ornament. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, who's who's behind these ornaments then? I mean, you know, Alexa, you had an interesting story about it today. But, you know, who is making sure that these abortion amendments get placed, that these measures keep moving through? You know, it seems to me there are two big pro-life groups that are sort of pushing some of these agendas. And it seems like the Alliance for Life folks, you know, they're happy. They like the way their bills are going. But the Texas Right to Life folks, which were backing Schaefer's amendments, are really the ones that say that the the more restrictive measures have not been prioritized this year. And, you know, obviously it's two years after HB2 was passed, which is one of the strictest abortion laws. And we're still waiting to see if some of that's going to be upheld in the courts, speaking of the Fifth Circuit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's sort of this back and forth of how far can we go? How much further can we go? And there's seems to be, you know, it's just not a priority right now. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So Rick Perry was back in the headlines this week with a, a great story by our own Patrick Svitek about some uh, what appears to be some strange conflicts facing the uh, one of the judges who is going to oversee the latest round of Perry's case. Anybody want to walk us through what some of those what some of those appearances of conflict are? Sure. Uh, so Perry has appealed his convoluted long uh, uh, indictment. Uh, to the state appeals court, and Justice Bob Pemberton uh, is one of the judges that is going to be hearing this appeal, and he used to be Perry's deputy general counsel. And not only that, but uh, one of his clerks, I believe, is Tom Phillips, who is now uh, on Perry's defense team. Pemberton was a clerk to Tom Phillips when Phillips was... uh Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Right, right, okay. And wasn't he, uh, Pemberton, also appointed by Perry? He was appointed by Perry. He's been through several elections. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's been a while since he was appointed. So, I mean, basically that's a, it's sort of like a triple crown. I mean, we have <laughs> three different ways here where, you know, the governor who's facing, the former governor who's facing these charges has a relationship with one of these judges. I mean, is this just to be expected in, in you know, this day and age in the Republican Party in Texas where there's so many appointees and so many relationships? Is there any way around something like this? Well, or part of it is just Perry was in office for so right, long. Right, exactly. That he, you know, he has, he touches everybody. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, he was the, he was appointing judges and, you know, everything else for 14 years. So he went all the way through the cycle, the governor's cycle of appointments more than twice. And so there's going to be a lot of this. You know, the question is whether Pemberton is in a situation where it looks like his judgment would be somehow impaired by his relationships. And, you know, they're going to have to determine that. The people outside, you know, Craig McDonald and some of the people over at the um, Texas Texans for Public Justice, for public yeah. justice are saying this is a conflict of interest. Um, one of Perry's lawyers, Tony Busby, said, you know, this isn't a conflict at all just because he knows the guy. Um, That's a little it, more than knowing, yeah, knowing the guy. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, you know, I'm. Yeah. <laughs> take your We're argument to messenger. Tony Busby. Yeah. <laughs> the phone well, number is. We did interview him for the story we wrote about it, and he said, this is no conflict and this is no story. Right. So, we you still know, wrote I mean, the story. There was the story. <laughs> so you're going to take it to the judges and you're going to say, you know, do you think this smells or not? And they're going to make a determination and proceed. And who gets to make a decision in a case like well, this? Well, you know, the judge himself makes a decision on recusal and says, you know, I, I believe I have a you know, conflict and I need to recuse myself or I don't. And, you know, that can that can come up as a later um, thing on appeal. You know, if the if the other side doesn't like the way this thing's going when they get to the next court. Uh, they can say, and besides, that judge should have recused himself, and that that might be grounds for an appeal. So and they're going to have, you know, the judge is going to look at it like he looks at everything else and say, you know, I, I judge this this way. <laughs> well, and for Rick Perry, who's trying to move past this and run for president, he's kind of has to decide, you know, do I want this judge to be recused so that I get the cleanest, uh, right, possible outcome? Yeah, yeah, or or do I do I want him to stay on and just have this move as fast as possible? Right. I think the fastest possible is probably. I mean, you know, you have somebody who, in theory, could be favorable to you, who and also like stays the course and gets it moving as fast as possible. I mean, he just wants this over and done with. I right. think. You know, Perry's trying to get out of the weeds. If you look at all the polls, you know, in the early voting states, Perry's down in the low single digits, and which isn't to be unexpected because he had such a flop four years ago. But he's got to make his run for. Uh, serious consideration here. And anything like an indictment is an impediment to that run. If, if, if he starts making any progress, everybody who's uh, losing ground to his progress is going to yell indictment at the top of their lives. Right. And, you know, he needs this behind him. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, what have we seen from him out on the trail in the last couple? Of, he's. It looks like he's really been emphasizing his his military history in particular. He got quite a good a, a bit of good press this this week about his Air Force history. He was on TV with Marcus Luttrell, who uh, is the you know I believe lived with him for a little while. Yeah, uh, former SEAL. Yeah, I mean, so you know, what's what's the the Rick Perry message right now? Because he's still polling pretty darn low. You know, you've got all of these conservatives in this race who don't have any executive experience. I have 14 years of executive experience. I'm the only one who served in the military among this group. I mean, he's playing his resume against their, um, you know, it's a bunch of tender feet and, uh, you know, here's an Eagle Scout. Yeah, it felt like four years ago he was really pushing his economic record. And this time he seems to be pushing more. I'm the serious guy in the room. And I'm kind of just like you. He had that video where he's sort of talking really about his video, roots yeah. and how he really can connect with people really down on sort of the floor level of the whole process. It's the national version of I am Bubba. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, why wouldn't you be totally playing up the economic record, though? You know, he's really sort of focusing on the military, focusing on his own roots. And like you said, the executive experience. Well, you know, the economy isn't nationally do- isn't doing great, but it's not as bad as it was in 2012. So it's not as... Um, a visceral connection to the voter that way. And there's also the issue of Texas's economy is kind of shaky right now with oil down, and it kind of feeds into the line that Perry just benefited from an oil boom. Mm-hmm. And so, and he's going to have to face that at some point on the campaign trail. So I could see why they don't want to push the economy as much now. Well, mm-hmm. and if someone is not, you know, if someone lives in a state that really went through a rough time and then you've got this guy coming in and saying, we did great in Texas, mm-hmm. I, wonder, I wonder if that sort of rubs people a little the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless they're like, well, hell, I would really like this in my state. <laughs> right. Well, his pitch before was, you know, I can do for the country what I did for Texas. And, and you know, that was the, the that was the, the last pitch. Yeah. Yeah, the country's catching up. Right. Right. Texas didn't you know, I mean the economy's not coming apart here, but it's not a standout in the same way that it was four years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have questions or comments, you can email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Uh, also, check back at texastribune.org every Thursday for a brand new podcast on the 2016 presidential race from a Texas perspective. It's called The Ticket, and it's co-hosted by our own Jay Root and KUT's Ben Philpot. You can also check back for some uh, terrific special podcasts on the state budget called Budget Line. That's by two guys who are sitting in the room with me right now, Ross and Amon. They had a fantastic one this week uh, that features Jane Nelson, the Senate finance chair, who very rarely gives uh, long sit-down interviews and, and did in this case for with our folks. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Ross, Alexa, Amon, and our producer, Todd, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking. I hate people. I know.